I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. To Matthew 19. I'm going to, to read beginning in verse 1 through verse 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is God's word. God in heaven, we ask that you would speak to us uh, through your word. God, I pray for your grace and for your truth to be spoken to each one of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned last week that in March 2020, we were preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. We came to Matthew chapter 19, and I preached a sermon on marriage and sexuality and focused on Jesus' teaching here on on divorce. And um, I ended that sermon by, by challenging us as a church to recognize that the church has often give, given simplistic answers to people's complicated questions and to people's complicated lives and really challenged us um, to dig deeper to the, the better story that the scriptures and Christian theology tells about marriage and gender and sexuality. And I finished this sermon with this promise that next week I'm going to tell that better story. And then COVID hit and uh, we were... That was not the appropriate message for that that next week as we were all thinking through the implications of what was happening then. And I'll be honest, I was a little relieved. (laughs) Wasn't sure if I was really ready to preach that sermon. And today, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm not ready. Um, But God is good, and I believe he's given us uh, his word, and he's given me a message for us today. 
I do think that often the church has given simplistic answers to people's struggles and questions around marriage, gender, and sexuality. Human beings are filled with desires and with pain and with longings and with complicated personal stories about how all of those desires and all of that pain came to be in their own individual lives. And sometimes the church has just offered a big no to those desires. Stop it. You shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't act that way. The Bible says so, and so you can't. And people have responded by saying, oh, yes, we can, and we will. The world is telling, I suggest to you, a compelling story about the desires and longings that we carry in our bodies. And the world offers a wide and easy road that says that freedom and happiness can come by fully expressing those desires. And if you do that, then you will live a satisfied and content life. But in the words of Jesus that we looked at last week, we are called to a narrow road to the narrow way that leads to life. And today we are looking at one of Jesus's narrow way teachings, in particular as it relates to marriage and sexuality. The teaching that Jesus gives to us here about the meaning and significance of marriage is a difficult teaching for us. It is a narrow way. It feels that way to people today who hear it and read it, And it felt like that to the people who first heard it. Did you notice how the disciples responded to what Jesus had to say? Jesus, this is really hard. And if what you're saying is true, it's just better to kind of forget the whole marriage thing altogether. What we heard last week as we talked about Jesus's call to the narrow way is that the narrow way can be very hard. It requires denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. It's difficult but it is the way that leads to true life. And the teaching that Jesus gives to us in Matthew 19 addresses some of the most important and pressing issues in our day-to-day about what it means to be a human being and about God's original design for marriage and for sex and God's original design for what it means for us to be born male and female. Gender and marriage, and sex. I don't have to tell you that these topics are presently being evaluated and reevaluated by our friends, by our neighbors, by us in the church, by our government, and by our schools. And there are a lot of changes that are happening as people are evaluating and reevaluating what they think about these things. And there's a lot of that that's really troubling and really disturbing. But I want to say to you today as we begin that this is nothing new. That the church throughout history has encountered issues that the culture has brought to the church. The church has then had to wrestle with and has has had to dig deeper. And through that engagement with the scriptures and engagement with the cultural issues that are coming their way, the church has come to deeper and more true understandings about the things that are presented to them. And so back in the past, in the second and third century, there were lots of questions about the nature of God 
And as they talked with philosophers during that day, they had to come to terms with what it meant that we worship God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was through searching the scriptures and engaging with what the world said that they came to deeper understanding and articulation about what was true about God. And over the centuries, the church has encountered all sorts of issues that have caused us to have to dig more deeply into uh, the scriptures and into our own church tradition and theology in order to better understand how to respond to the culture. But as we learn to respond to the culture, we also grow in our own understanding as well. And I want to suggest to you that the topic, the topic of the day that the church is seeking to respond to is not only around gender and sexuality, but it's around what it means to be a human being. I think that that is the topic that the church right now, because of all of the, the things that are going on around us, is requiring us to ask and to find resources in the scriptures to understand what we truly believe about what it means to be a human being from the womb until death. And everywhere in between. And so the truths that we're going to talk about today, I want to suggest to you, don't only help us to better understand marriage, gender, and sex, but these truths also help us to understand how we understand abortion, as we heard today, and how we relate uh, to men and to women who go through abortions or who are considering that. The next topic that's going to be coming down the road very quickly is the role that artificial intelligence is going to play in our lives and how artificial intelligence is going to interact with our own bodies and with our own brains. And we need to have a deep understanding of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. If we're going to not only have answers to the world as if we're always arguing with the world, but also answers for ourselves as we have to navigate these really, really difficult topics. So a few resources for you that I just want to mention. You can jot them down real quick and we'll move on. Um, Three resources in the area of of marriage and sexuality that have been helpful for me. The first is a gentleman named Preston Sprinkle who has done a lot of really good work in this area and has been in relationship with individuals who are um, gay, transgender, um, bisexual, has been in conversation with them while also holding truth to what uh, we believe the scriptures say. She has a book called People to be Loved that's on um, same-sex marriage and um, and homosexuality. And he also has a book called Embodied that talks about the uh, issue of transgender people. There's a very short article um, online that you can find by Andy Crouch called Sex Without Bodies. We always have to be careful when we're talking about these topics, what our Google searches look like. But if you just type in Sex Without Bodies, Andy Crouch, his article should come up. It's a short article, but I think really puts a good point on on some of the issues that we have to wrestle with. And then a book, I want to thank uh, Dan and Amy Skiringa for passing this on to me. It's by Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body, which is an excellent understanding of what the Christian um, tradition and theology and what the scriptures teach about the goodness of our bodies. So there's just a few resources that I have found helpful recently, and in particular this week, um, as I've been preparing for the sermon So as you can imagine, this has been a challenging sermon for me to write. And uh, one of the problems for me in talking about 
um, gender and sexuality in marriage is that it feels to me that there are about a hundred different conversations that I want to have. Uh, You know me well enough now that as a pastor, I want to deal with people as people. Uh, I want to deal with the person in front of me. And when you preach a sermon to a room full of people, it's really easy for me to realize how many stories I'm going to miss. How much of your own particular situation, your own particular concerns and questions, I'm going to miss today. And I promise you that as I'm preaching today, in my own mind, I'm going to be saying, yes, Ryan, but what about this? And I suspect you will be too, and that's okay. I'm not suggesting today that my sermon is like the final word ever on this topic. But I think it is a good and true word for us today, and one that we can hear and receive. And so, you know, as I think about this issue, you know, I, I think about, you know, my, my friends who, um, who, who are gay, who are in homosexual relationships, and that I'm still in relationship with them. And so as I'm preparing the sermon, they come to mind, and I think, what, what would happen if they're listening in today online, and how are they going to hear what I have to say? Because I love them. They're my friends. And when I, when I talk with them, I don't feel like I always, every single time, have to somehow figure out a way to be God's voice in their life on this issue. Like, we're friends. And, and we, we just talk about life together, and they're a blessing to me, and I hope that I'm a blessing to them. And they've extended grace to me as I've had questions or have said things that were insensitive to them, and I hope that they've experienced grace through me. But then I also think about this, this movement, and for me it's a, it's a very kind of faceless movement that is led by, it seems to me, adults who are telling children that their biological bodies have no meaning or purpose. And that what an 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 or 15 or 16-year-old boy or girl, what it means for them to live out an authentic life that, that might be in conflict with their body. And that the only solution to that conflict that they experience between what they feel and what their bodies say is some sort of life-altering gender reassignment surgery and a life filled of expensive hormones that they pump into their bodies. And so I can think about that, and I can get really angry really fast as the dad of girls. So do you hear what I'm saying here? I feel like there's a lot of different conversations that need to happen As we think about this, there are the relational elements, and there's also these big cultural movements that are causing a lot of damage to people. And it's all just kind of thrown into one pot of soup, and it's all mixed up, and you're either on one side or another. That's one of the reasons why it's been hard for me to think about this week, is because I feel like there's a lot of different conversations that I want to have about this, a lot of different kinds of sermons that I would want to preach. But more than that, The sermon's been difficult for me to prepare this week because of how personal and painful this topic is for people. Jesus talks here about gender and sexuality and marriage and divorce and singleness. This section of Jesus' teaching addresses parts of our lives where we 
find some of our greatest joys, where we experience some of our strongest desires, where we learn to express some of our very real needs for love and intimacy as human beings. But it's also a place in our lives where we experience our deepest wounds and our deepest shame and our deepest disappointments. I'm not sure that there is another topic that could be talked about that is more tender than this one for people. Many of you have deep wounds because of sexual abuse in your past or because of divorce that you've gone through or divorce that you experienced growing up. Some of you have experienced wounds from the church because of the way the church has handled or mishandled some situation in your life or spoke to you in a way that shamed you deeply. There are a lot of wounds around this topic because of things that people have done to us or said to us in matters relating to our sexuality. And there's also a lot of shame Around this topic, our failures in these areas bring a lot of shame in our lives. We are always tempted to hide our sin, but it's not, it's not a coincidence that when Adam and Eve took the apple, that they immediately covered their nakedness. There's something particularly shameful that we feel about the ways that we fail sexually. So there's a lot of shame around this topic for us. And as I've prepared this week, uh, prepared and prepared this week for this sermon, my struggle has, yes, uh, been because this is a difficult cultural topic to address. But even more than that, I know that this topic comes for many of you, most of you, maybe all of us comes with a lot of personal disappointment and woundedness and shame. Some of you in this room are married and you have a really great marriage. It's not perfect, but it's great or good (laughs) or good sometimes. There are some of you in this room today who are in marriages that are really, really struggling. Like there are times when we are not sure if we are going to make it struggling. There are some of you in here who are single and that that is a really hard part of your life. It's a daily disappointment. You desperately want to be married and to have a partner. It's a daily struggle for you. There are others of you who are single, and while that may be hard for some ways, but you've also come to a deep contentment about that in your life. There are some of you in this room who are physically attracted to people of the same sex, and you are right now or have been trying to figure out what that means for you and what that means for you in your relationship with God. There are others of you who are struggling with your gender identity or you have family members, kids, relatives who are struggling with their gender identity or even presently transitioning from one gender to another and it's hard for you to know how to respond. And things have changed really fast, right? Five, ten years ago, I don't think any of us would have imagined how quickly this has become pervasive and common 
And there are some of you in this room who live in constant turmoil because of sexual sin in your life, infidelity, addiction to pornography. And that sin and shame causes you to hide from your friends, from your spouse, from yourself, from God. So that's really why it's been really hard this week in preparing this. I know many of your stories. Pain and shame around this area is a part of my story. So there are three things today, in spite of that, and because I believe God's called me to preach this to us today, three things that I want to attempt to do with God's help. First thing I want to do is to attempt to point out some of the main problems with the story that the world is telling us about marriage and gender and sexuality. Secondly, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19 and hear the good news that Jesus and the scriptures offer to us about marriage and gender and sexuality. And then finally, I just want to give a few basic pastoral practical suggestions for moving forward along the narrow way that Jesus calls us to. So first, let's talk about the cultural story that we're being told. I want to suggest to you that the cultural story that we're often told uh, does two things. First, that it degrades the human body. And second, that it diminishes the beauty and the purposes of sex. It does more than that. But these are two things that I want to speak about today, especially as it relates to Matthew chapter 19. The present story that the world often tells about our sexuality is that on one hand, sex is everything. And on the other hand, that sex is nothing. Sex is everything and sex is nothing. It amplifies our sexuality and makes it everything, part of the core of our identity on the one hand. And then on the other hand, diminishes sex as if it's not important. And the way that we practice it is not important. So tell me if this sounds familiar to you. We are told in many ways that our sexuality is what defines us. It's what makes us who we are. That we should label and define ourselves according to who we are physically attracted to. But then at the very same time, that the act of sex, what we do with our bodies, doesn't matter at all. It's just a biological act, a, a physical release. Our sexuality, who we feel attracted to sexually, is told to us that it's at the core of our identity as a person. But that the act should have no consequences. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. Or in the case of transgender persons, identity the core of who we are is who we believe in our mind that we are about being a male or a female or on some spectrum of gender that's been offered. What is told is that the physical body does not matter. In fact, the story is told that my body can actually be in conflict with who I really am. And so, so who I am, my identity is at war with my body. Friends, that is not good news. In the case of the transgender movement especially is this idea that our bodies tell us nothing about who we are. 
and that it is possible that there can be a war between who we really are and the physical bodies that we carry with us every single day. This general view is being told to us degrades the significance of the meaning of our bodies. By magnifying our sexuality, our thoughts about who we are is defined by who we are attracted to or what we think about what our bodies could be or should be. But then at the very same time, we are told that these bodies tell us nothing about those desires and about the way that those desires need to be expressed. This general view of the story that we're being told right now degrades the human body and makes the human body a problem that needs to be fixed. And it also diminishes the beauty and the power of sex. And some of the more extreme views of the way that the world is telling us a story about sex is that it's not something beautiful or special or incredible or powerfully potent that deserves our respect, but is is just this thing that we can do. It's kind of like playtime for adults. I don't think I'm going to tell you anything that you don't know. But friends, sex is what generates and creates human life. What an incredible and beautiful thing. And one of the greatest lies and deceptions of the enemy about sex is the way that sex and procreation have been divorced in our minds. That the two go together. Sex is the way that God designed new human life to come into the world. That is not the only reason that God gave sex to human beings, but it is the first reason that is given to us in Genesis 1 and 2. So that human beings could fulfill the divine purpose that he gave to us. To be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with the image of God. And the underlying ideology that the LGBTQ movement does not have is a place for the beautiful realities of our bodies and for the goodness of the results and consequences of our sexual activity. Those things are a problem for this movement that need to be fixed in all sorts of ways. And I believe that the scriptures give us a better story about these things. Let's talk about what Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 19. I'll read again verses 4 through 6. Jesus responds to these teachers who are coming to test them. He says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. The first good news that the scriptures offer to us about marriage and gender and sexuality is that they were created by God, that we have a creator. Jesus here refers to God as the creator. And for those of you who are Bible nerds, I was trying to find another place in the Gospels where Jesus refers to God as creator. 
he usually refers to him as father. But here in this teaching, he brings out the fact that we are created, that God made a decision to create us. The second thing that we're going to talk about is that sex and marriage have a divine design and purpose. And third, that sex and marriage are not the only ways to live a joy-filled life. So we have a creator. Sex and marriage have a divine design and purpose. And sex and marriage are not the only ways to live our joy-filled life. So first, we have a creator. This is good news. We have a God who made us. He chose to make you. You were his idea. Your body and your personality and who you are was purposed by God before the world began. The psalm that we heard on the video today that we are wonderfully made. One of the first things that we have to offer to the world is not that God says no to humanity, but that God decided to say yes to us by making us in the first place. We have a creator. This is good news. And the scriptures tell us that when we were made, that God created our bodies and that they were good. Genesis 1 and 2 that Jesus quotes here emphasizes that there are two different kinds of good bodies that God made male bodies and female bodies that both reflect the image of God. Genesis is clear that both male and female, wonderfully made, reflect the image of God. And because of this, that you don't have to be at war with your body. You don't have to be in conflict with your body. God made it and has a plan and a purpose for it. Your body is a good thing. It's not just a piece of meat. It's not a biological machine. Your body reflects the image of God in the world. Your body is good. And secondly, we have a creator. And so our identity is given to us by him. It's not invented by us. Our identity is given to us by God. It's not invented by us. Being made in the image of God is the first thing about who you are. Before anything else, before human beings did anything, before they fell and disobeyed God, this is the first thing that we are told about us, that we were made in God's image. There is something inherently good about every single human being that you encounter. Every human being reflects, images God to the world in some way. But right now we are being told that all of us are now responsible to make up our identity on our own. We have to discover it. We have to make it up. We have to find it. We have to generate it. And this is a weight that we were never meant to carry. Here at the very beginning, we are told that our identity as people made in the image of God is given to us. It's it's not something that we have to invent. We don't have to conjure it up or to discover it. We have been told by our creator the first thing about our identity that we were made in his image. Who am I? Who are you? I am a human being made in the image of God. Second, sex and marriage, according to Jesus, has a divine purpose, design and purpose. Jesus is very clear in this passage about what marriage is and what marriage is for. It is the joining together of the two halves of humanity that reflect the divine image. 
God's purpose for marriage is that male and female would be joined together in a covenant commitment to one another. Male and female leave the bonds of their family life and they go and they cleave to one another and are joined together in a commitment called marriage. And within that marriage, there is sexual union where those two halves of God's human creation are joined together physically and become one flesh. And when they become one flesh, there is then the potential for more human life, for more human image bearers to be brought into the world. There are six or seven biblical scriptures that prohibit homosexuality, that prohibit same-sex behavior. Those six or seven biblical scriptures find their meaning and their coherence in Genesis 1 and 2 and in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 19. They don't make sense without Genesis 1 and 2. They don't make sense without Jesus' exposition of, of marriage here in Matthew 19. From the beginning, Jesus says marriage was designed to be a commitment between male and female whose bodies were made to fit together. The male body and the female body fit in a way that sexual activity, same-sex activity, does not. And male and female then are two pieces of a puzzle that then bring about the image of God in the world. God's design for sex and for marriage is coherent with the design of our bodies. God's plan and purpose for marriage between one man and one woman fits with the design of the bodies that he gave to us. Third, sex and marriage are not the only ways to a joy-filled life. Verses 11 and 12, this is a really, really weird two verses. I'm going to unpack it as quickly as I can, but I, I think it'll make sense to you by the end. Jesus, after they talk with him about marriage and divorce, and this teaching is really hard, this is what he says to them. He says, not everyone, who could, can ex- not everyone can accept this word. That word is that not everyone should get married. He says, not everyone can accept that, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Okay. Super strange couple verses, but becoming a eunuch was very common in Jesus's day. What would happen is that a king or some other rich person would have servants and would often have multiple wives. And basically they need servants who they knew weren't going to mess around with their wives. And so those eunuchs would commit themselves often voluntarily to be castrated so that that wouldn't happen. It's a very strange practice to us, but it was common and known at this time. But basically what Jesus is saying here is that eunuchs were a group of people who will not ever have sex or ever reproduce children. And Jesus uses this metaphor of being a eunuch to describe a way of life that some people in the kingdom of God are called to. A way of life that he was called to. That there is a choice that some people make to renounce marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And here Jesus says, anyone who can accept this 
this decision to renounce marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, anyone who should, can accept it should accept it. Which says to me that our, the ways that we have often held up marriage as sort of a goal wasn't Jesus' goal. It's one of two different ways to faithfully live out our maleness and femaleness and our sexuality through marriage or through a single life, the life that he chose. Marriage is good and the single life is good. Both of them come with their own joys and struggles and heartaches. Those of you who are married know that marriage did not quickly satisfy all of the things that you needed in your life. There's a lot of frustrations in marriage. Your spouse does and will disappoint you in many ways, and it can be very painful. The single life comes with its own joys and griefs. I don't need to tell you single folks how much the church has failed you to provide for you the family that you need to live out this life of singleness faithfully. And so just like the disappointments that married people have, you have disappointments as well. And what we all need to know, both married or single, is that we were never meant to have any person completely satisfy the needs that we have for love and intimacy. That can only be fulfilled in relationship with God. So as we think here about Jesus' teaching about renouncing marriage, let's remember that Jesus is describing his own life choice. He was an unmarried man who remained celibate for his whole life for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he was the most satisfied and fulfilled human being that has ever lived. Jesus, in his teaching and in his own life, he brings dignity and honor to the single life in a way that no religious teacher up to that time or really ever since ever has. It was a brand new idea. And in short, I just want to sum up what Jesus is saying here is you do not have to have sex in order to have a joy-filled life. And that was a radical idea in Jesus's day, and it's a radical idea today. But for those of you who are called to it, God bless you. And I really desire, and the elders had an extended discussion this Sunday, we really desire to be a place where we do better at creating a different model of family, where married people and children and single people interact together and share, share meals and life together in a more significant way. And I know that there are many of you who long for that. We need to pray that we would be that kind of church that expresses both marriage and singleness in this good and God-honoring way. Jesus' teaching on sexuality is a call to a narrow way. It's a call to pay attention to the way our bodies were designed by God and to ask for God's help to make sure that our thoughts and our actions align with the body that he gave us and for the purpose that he has given us for our bodies. So I just want to finish with some practical guidance for the narrow way that we are being called to live. The first is this, that we need to live lives that are committed to repentance and vulnerability. Here is the truth. All of us have failed to honor God with our bodies. 
We have failed to honor other human beings with our thoughts and with our actions. And so we, as the church, need to model and to live out repentance and vulnerability with one another. The church has often pointed at the world's practices of sexuality as the threat while ignoring the sin in our own lives or among us. And that must stop if we were going to walk along the narrow way. Paul was writing at a time of great sexual degradation in Rome, and he acknowledged that, but his warning was directed to the church that they pay attention to their holiness and to their purity. The narrow way was for the church to live a life of repentance and vulnerability. And this is really hard. There is a lot of shame when it comes to our own sexual failures. But I came across a quote this week that was a comfort to me from J.I. Packer. He says this, There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love for me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. God knows the worst about you and he loves you. We can as people, because of this truth, because of the good news, live in repentance and vulnerability with one another, with our friends, with our spouses, and with God. The second thing for guidance for the narrow way is to accept the fact that the narrow way will always be seen as narrow-minded. This has always been the case, And we need to accept that as a reality. We are going to be tempted as we seek to walk the narrow way. On the one hand, to compromise the narrow way for the sake of of acceptance on one hand. Or on the other hand, stand in the narrow way and throw stones at people walking along the Broadway. Not this Broadway. The wide road. And neither of those are going to help us be faithful to our calling to the narrow way. Our calling in the church is to be faithful to Jesus no matter what. And part of faithfulness is this hard, narrow road of celibacy outside of marriage and chastity and fidelity inside of marriage. It's really difficult. And part of that faithfulness as well is to be kind and gentle to those who don't agree. And to be ready with the good news of the narrow way to those who are ready and open to receiving it from us. But it is not our responsibility to throw stones at people taking the wide road. It is our responsibility to love them, to be their neighbor, to be kind, to enter into relationship with them, to invite them into our lives. The narrow way of Jesus will always be seen as narrow-minded and backward. And there may come a day when covenant marriage between one man and one woman is going to look really, really strange. And it's in that time where we can demonstrate, if we are faithful, if 
we are faithful to this calling, we can demonstrate that this narrow way really does lead to life. Last two things very quickly. Once just for parents, want to encourage you to take the narrow way of being in front, in front of culture, school, friends, other people who are going to tell your children all sorts of things that you may not know of or be aware of. Parents take the narrow way of being in the front and teaching your kids what you believe, what we believe, what the scriptures believe about marriage and gender and sexuality. It's hard. It's really difficult, but you can do it. And it's really important. Third, just want to, I've already mentioned this already, but for us as a church to begin praying about and practicing what it means for us to be a new kind of family that isn't only focused on husband, wife, two children, white picket fence, but a people who are called to live together in uncommon unity that we say here at Broadway as people from all different walks of life, married and single, are together, who live our lives together, who interact with one another, who are aunt and uncles to kids, and who are a place of support for people who are single, that we would be that kind of people. If we are, to say this really clearly, if we are asking as a church for people who are same-sex attracted to stay celibate their entire life, it is dependent then on us to care for them to be the closest friends that they could ever have. If we are asking people who are single, not same-sex attracted, but simply single and have not yet found a spouse or have chosen and are content with not finding a spouse, they need us as a whole church to be family. That means invitations into home for dinner, Thanksgiving, Christmas, all of those sorts of things. And all of these guidances for the narrow way, I just want to say, like, I got a lot of work to do. But this is the call for us. This is the call for us. So with that, let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us strength, wisdom, guidance for walking this narrow way. That we would be people of repentance and vulnerability. God, that we would be, be ready to stand in kindness and in truth and walk this narrow way in a world that disagrees with us and believes that we're backward and narrow-minded. That we would just live the narrow way in goodness and in kindness and show and demonstrate that it's the way that leads to life. I pray for parents here who are wrestling with how to talk about this with their children, with their young children, for parents who are walking through deep disappointment as their kids may be making decisions that they see are harmful. God, that you would give them wisdom, direction, power, strength, tears to walk with their kids. And God, I do pray for us here at Broadway that we would be a new kind of family that you call us to be as the church. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.